The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, church. I want to say welcome to all who are here today. If you are a part of our family and regularly attend, welcome in the name of Jesus. And if you're a visitor today, we want to welcome you. And I want to echo what was said earlier. We would love to be able to connect with you. And so if you wouldn't mind filling out for us a visitor card or uh, going inside the bulletin and scanning in, you can, you can do that online. We just love to be able to connect with you. I also want to echo uh, to celebrate with Cole Osborne and Garen Kaiser and their baptisms over the past uh, two weeks. God has been at work, and we have seen the fruits of his spirit in the lives of many, not only that have given their lives to Jesus, but in other significant ways. As Brett said, today we are going to start um, a new sermon series called Christ and Crisis. And the reason we want to do this is four parts. This is what we hope to accomplish with this series is that we have, um, we have people amongst us that have stories that need to be told. We have people amongst us that need to tell their stories and we need to hear them. There are people in this congregation who've been through significant crisis. And my guess is that each one of us has either been through crisis or is going through one. And if you haven't, you will. It's part of life. And so we want to hear those testimonies. And we want to hear a few things out of them. One, we want to hear the transformation. We want to hear the ways that God and his spirit have worked through, have sustained, have redeemed, and transformed people, even in the midst of crisis. So we want you to hear those testimonies. But we also want you to hear this. We also want you to hear what faith really looks like in the midst of crisis. And it may not always look like what you think it does. Transformation, for that matter, may not look exactly like you think it should or does. And faith may not look like what you think it should be either. And so we want to hear stories. One, we want to hear about God's work and the lives of people in this congregation. We want you to hear what faith looks like in the midst of crisis. And then the fourth thing is this. We want to be a place that is able to talk about our, our crisis. And it may not be, of course, coming up on stage. We've, we've selected people that have been through crisis and that are willing to talk about it. And our goal is not to get you up here on stage, but what we want you to hear and be encouraged by is that this is a place we can talk about crisis and faith. We want to be a place that is able to confess sin and confess our burdens we want to be able to destigmatize things like mental health challenges 
and all those things that we don't talk about because church, right, for so long has been the place where you put your best face or best foot forward. So we want to be able to confess all those things that we maybe were afraid to before and just say, this is who I am. This is what I'm going through. We also want to learn from these stories. We want to learn about the ways as a church we can walk with people who are going through crisis, how we can carry one another's burdens, how we can share together. We want to celebrate transformation and walk with those that maybe that kind of transformation and redemption hasn't shown up. We want to celebrate with those that it has, but those who are on a long, long journey and that we can't discern God's working here or there or anywhere. How do we walk with those people as well? So we want to learn how to better walk with people on their long journey to transformation or just in the midst of their crisis. So that's our four goals. One, to share testimonies, to look at the ways God has worked in people's lives amongst us, to look at what faith really looks like in the midst of crisis, and then to destigmatize these things. That all of us may have the courage, and maybe not to share with the entire congregation, but to know there are people in this room that you can go, they're going through what I'm going through, and maybe I can talk to them about it. Maybe I don't have to be alone. So today, we want to begin uh, with Rob and Valerie Sisk. They have a story to tell. And many of you have heard their story before, but it is worth telling over and over again. Rob and Valerie have been married for 21 years. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's a long time to be married. And then I realized, wait a minute, I've been married like 18 years. I'm like not that far behind them. But Rob spent, uh, has spent 12 years in the military. And not only during that time, but particularly after getting out of the military, went through a significant crisis. In fact, it wasn't just one. Rob's, Rob and Val's story, like many stories of crisis, is not just a singular crisis, but is multifaceted and multilayered. Rob experienced post-traumatic stress from his time serving in the military. He also experienced trauma and a traumatic brain injury that affected him significantly. And then finally, his life and identity was wrapped up in being in the service, in the military. And so when he got out, there was an identity crisis. And so I want to call them up now and invite everyone to encourage them. Let's give them a big round of applause for being willing to come and share with us this morning. Welcome, you guys. Let's begin with a word of prayer before we begin. Father, as always, we give you thanks for you are our life. And I thank you for Rob and Valerie, for their family, and the way you have brought them life in the midst of crisis. 
And so I ask for your spirit to be upon them. Give them words. Give them a testimony. And Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to follow, and lives that will obey. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Rob, let's begin with you. Uh, why don't you give us some of the backstory in order to provide some context for talking about your crisis of post-traumatic stress, your TBI, your traumatic brain injury, and your identity. Give us some background that, that brings up to speed uh, to your crisis. Uh, well, growing up, I, I remember from the time I was four years old that I didn't want to do anything but be in the Army. I remember going to an airborne demonstration and uh, seeing a guy jump out of an airplane and like land face first and he was bleeding, his nose was bleeding, but he was smiling and laughing. I was like, man, but can be in that much pain and be laughing. It's got to be something cool. And I didn't really have any college prospects, so I wanted to jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. And uh, so that's what I did. I joined the Army and got an airborne contract and uh, was assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group, which was an amazing unit to be uh, a part of. Uh, deployed to uh, um, Iraq twice, um, Bosnia and Kosovo, and then the last deployment to Afghanistan. Um, I guess uh, it's, I always, that's what I always wanted to be, it's who I was. Um, it was something that I was good at. Um, I was really good at my job. Uh, one of the top of my class that graduated from, uh, from human intelligence, which is what I did, um, I was really good. I had a just a natural ability to, uh, to, uh, I don't know, um, figure out uh, things from the smallest little clue or piece of, that I would get from the people that I would talk to, and um, I could tell when people were lying. You know, it was one of those things where I just always had this. I was just good at it, and I loved doing it because I felt like it was important. My job helped keep soldiers alive, um, so it was important. Um, I did six years and then I got hurt. Uh, I, on an airborne training jump, I landed and uh, the wind drug me and I actually uh, detached my tendon that runs from the top of my hip to the inside of my knee. And it was uh, in the late 90s, so um, they weren't trying to reclass soldiers or do anything like that. They just kind of put me out. Uh, so all of a sudden, I'm out of the Army. I get married three days later. Uh, back, back to boot camp. Back to boot camp, <laughs> for sure. Um, and at this time, I didn't, I wasn't ever good at anything else. So I was, I was struggled with finding something to do. And I mean, I worked at a church. I worked, I did all kinds of things. And finally, landed up at the, uh, landed at the post office because uh, I could walk and you know be outside and do all the things. I mean, it was, it was a, a job that I could do, and I didn't have to think too much about it. Um, and then a friend of ours who was a first sergeant of the intel company for the 45th had talked to me about uh, getting back in. I was like, man, I tried. After 9-11, I tried to get back in like three or four times, and they just wouldn't take me. And I was in really good shape. I, you know, my injury had healed, and um, he said, if I can get you in, would you, would you join? And I was like, sure. I felt like I had an unfinished business. Uh, I signed up for six years because I was supposed to get a $60,000 bonus um, 
there were some paperwork mess ups in December. I signed up in January. The bonus went away at the beginning of the year, so I signed up for six years and no bonus. Uh, but I signed up with the specific intention knowing that the 45th was going to be deploying to Afghanistan, and they didn't have a lot of people with combat experience, which I had. Uh, and uh, it was an opportunity to, I guess, I don't know, just feel like I was doing something important again. Um, Yeah, it was the hardest deployment that I was ever on as far as, like, uh, uh, stress-wise. I mean, we were in a really high uh, activity area, a lot of kinetic activity. Um, we couldn't get half a mile from our little base before we would get shot at. Um, sometimes the, it would last off and on all day long. Uh, if we didn't leave our base for a couple of days, they'd come around and, you know, lob mortars at us or shoot at us. Um, but I didn't, I mean, honestly, I didn't really kind of mind. It was, I was still, it was, I was able to focus on my work. I was still doing things that were important. I'd go out on a lot of missions outside the wire. Um, and from doing that, I put myself, you know, I was 38 years old the last deployment. Uh, not a young guy anymore compared to Army standards. And um, I had, I suffered three concussions within a two-week period. Um, and I didn't really think about it too much, you know. Got my bell rung, I was seeing stars. Um, I didn't think a whole lot about it. Um, I was having headaches, but I was still able to really kind of focus in on my job. And, uh, but it was hard. It was a tough deployment. Um, I come home, and uh, I was still having headaches. I was still uh, I was having short-term memory issues. I lost my wallet for three months. It was in my nightstand drawer the entire time, which I had opened up like three or four times. And... Um, I couldn't, re I, was, I couldn't read. I started where I, I couldn't read anything. Uh, I would, you know, I went back to work at the post office. I'd go to put a piece of mail up in the case and forget. Like from the time I looked at it, the time I would do this, I would forget where it went. And I just thought I was going crazy. Uh, I didn't want to tell anybody about it because uh, I had a top secret clearance. I, you know, I was hearing horror stories about guys losing their clearances. I didn't want to lose my job at you know, my military job. Uh, I don't know. Things just kind of started to unravel, and I wasn't sure why. I didn't believe that there was anything wrong with me. I thought that if I focused hard enough, um, that it was, it was something I could get myself through. Um, but it, it affected all kinds of things. I mean... Uh, before, I could just be a blank face and uh, no emotion, control emotion, and all of a sudden I couldn't anymore. Um, and I wasn't used to feeling things, so uh, I would, you know, I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I just started pulling away and slowly but surely just isolating myself uh, from my family. And I got sent out to Monterey, California to learn Arabic. Try doing that with short-term memory issues. Hmm. 100 vocabulary words a day. Um, and uh, I could listen to it, and I started to have some success. But reading and writing and uh, memorizing the stuff that I had to memorize, it was the first time in my life I'd ever failed at anything. And I was mad at Val for making me go out there because she wanted me to go out there, and I didn't want to go. And I came home, and... Uh, 
uh, in 2014. And uh, I, I mean, depression, I can't, I mean, I wasn't like suicidal or anything, but I didn't enjoy anything. Uh, the littlest thing would just put me right back in my room. You know, if I had a day off and was going to go fishing, yeah. uh, if I couldn't walk out and find the right lure or, I don't know, the right hat, I would just go get back in bed. And um, whenever my wife would try to force me to engage, I would get angry and start yelling and screaming, not because I was really angry, but because I just wanted to be left alone. And I figured if I made them mad, she'd leave me alone. I want to ask, and this is... This is Post-traumatic stress we'll talk about in a minute, the trauma that you experienced, like leaving your keys, leaving your keys in, in your car running and not remembering, losing your wallet for, um, but you talked about the depression and the anger. Val, I want to ask, what was this time like for you? He comes back from Afghanistan and you're probably just thrilled that he's home. Um, I was, I married him knowing that or expecting to um, be that military wife for life. Um, I'm a really good cheerleader. I was on board. I did all the things, you know, joined all the groups, all the clubs, put the kids in every program. Um, that's who I wanted him to be. I wanted him to be that hometown hero. And um, when he came home and he wasn't um, himself, um, you don't know what that, you, you kind of, you, you do all the classes, you take all of the courses and, um, you go to all the group meetings. Um, at the time, the VA, uh, all they offered for, uh, caregivers or spouses of, um, people with PTSD was, uh, this one group class. And I went one time and it was a room full of wives, um, asking, the facilitator, how do I divorce my husband without him committing suicide? Mm. Um, that was their only out. Um, that was their goal, was to just get out because they couldn't take it. I couldn't take it either, but I, that, I'm like, that's, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to make things better. Um, and I couldn't. Um, I was the emoter of the family. I was the control. I was the, all of these things, and all of a sudden, that everything was out the window. All of my coping skills, my really bad coping skills came out. Um, eating disorder, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Reared its ugly head, all of those awful, nasty things. And the more I tried to control the situation, um, the worse it got, the worse he got. Um, you know, Ben mentions the keys. Um, my line in the sand for him getting any kind of professional help was, um, I took the garbage out one night about 11 o'clock and um, his car door was open and the car was running and it was 11. He'd gotten home at like 3.30 that afternoon and the car was running the whole time. And he said, I don't even remember coming home. And I said, something is wrong. You have to go get help. Something is wrong. Um, he did. Um, that's when we found out. And that was six months, by the way, after he came home from Afghanistan. Um, so for six months, he kept saying there's nothing wrong. And I'm like, yeah, there is. Um, the tremors, this, this mental, I call it mental stutter, uh, the lack of recall, um, all of those things that, that 
are obvious signs to the people on the outside. And, and you know, you have to remember, we have three kids. We had adopted our son in 2009, and he left in 2010. Mm-hmm. So we have all of that dynamic to work on and, and, and all of that. Um, but that was, that was rough. You, you mentioned, we were, we were was telling me some of these stories earlier, and you mentioned how that all you wanted to be was in the Army. And when you made that decision, right, and, and you told Val, Val, I want you to tell the story about what you were honest with about him when he decided to leave the military. After, I think it was 2015, um, he, he was really struggling. And, I, of course, he never talked to me about it at all. Um, and I was already in counseling and things like that and, and trying to get healthy. Um, he asked me, he said, so I'm thinking about getting out, but I can't believe they're offering me all this stuff, all the things that I've ever wanted to do. I could do this full time. I could do, he said, but I can also retire. What do you think? And I had to be really honest and it's ugly that I said, you know, I know it's probably what is best for you. I am terrified because I'm afraid that I will not have anything to be proud of you for if you get out. And going through all of the garbage was worth it to me if I could stand back and say, but he's a hero. But he's, you know, I can, I will tolerate this. I will be the martyr as long as, as he's, you know, fighting for us. And um, I didn't know if I could go through all of the day-to-day garbage that we go through and him, there'd be no, the payoff for me so what was it like for you uh you said at the beginning you wanted to you saw a guy jump out of airplanes and that's all you wanted to do and earlier you talked about it was a leap of faith for you to get out you weren't sure that was the right thing to do but you felt like you needed to do that talk about talk about your identity in that and what was like leaving and what it was like uh trying to find out who you were talk about that crisis well, um, so I had already, uh, you know, March of 2015 was when I pretty much hit rock bottom. Uh, and Val wrote me this letter, and she had written me letters before, and I'd usually either gotten mad and yelled at her or wadded them up, threw them in the trash. And, uh, but I knew I had hit a point where I knew that I had to do something, and I didn't know what. I'd grown up in church. I believe in God. I mean, I believe in God. He had... I, you know, I had faith. Um, I just didn't understand grace. But I had been getting help, and uh, you know, had God had had shown Himself. You know, had 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 been there all along, but uh, you know, had shown me that. Uh, that he was there with me, um, but then when we, you know, we get to this point, I had already done a whole lot as far as like, uh, um, yeah, where where I was, um, because, uh, you know, I I remember the journey seemed like it was so long, but it was really just a few months, uh, and I remember uh, asking God, I don't know what to do, and. Next thing I know, I end up on this Francis Chan podcast, and I didn't even know really. I had heard of Francis Chan, but I didn't know he was famous or popular or anything like that. I just, 
um, but he was doing a, a sermon on uh, John 15, and um, and he was just said that if you know he's reading that scripture, and he's like, "I am the vine, you are the branches," and he says, "If you know, if you abide in me, and I in you, you will produce much fruit." And Francis Chan said he was like, "Look, it's it's simple. If you do this, this happens." And I had to rewind that like a hundred times. I'm like, "There's no way. It's this simple. No way." I didn't believe it, but I was like, okay, all right. I don't think it's going to work, God, but uh, if, if I stay focused on you, that's what abide meant to me at the time. I now understand and still learning the depths and, the, you know, uh, it's that all-encompassing word, abide. And even when I would kind of fall to, you know, the right or the left, I was just struggling with uh, um, just a sense of hopelessness. Uh, you know, if I just focused on God, if I just did that, I didn't worry about, I was, I knew I was in danger in my marriage. I thought my marriage was over, to be honest with you. Um, she was done. She had checked out. Um, I wasn't even trying to do that. I just, I stay focused, stay focused, stay focused. And all of a sudden, my heart started changing. Uh, I cried for the first time in 10 years, I think. Uh, I'd been to my, you know, been to funerals of people I loved and cared about and didn't shed a tear. And, uh, and the first time I'm just crying and I'm, I didn't understand all the emotions and I didn't understand, but I, I was like, okay, you know, uh, and it was little things the way I responded to the things she would say to me that I knew were, prov she was trying to provoke me into like being that old person. And, uh, and I would respond completely different. Instead of yelling and screaming or getting defensive, I would say, well, I can understand why you feel that way. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> this, is, this, is not, this is not how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to be mad, you're supposed to be mad, and the end. Well, and I still not what happened. Yeah, I still couldn't read, but I would listen to the Bible app, um, the Version Bible app, while I walked. Uh, and instead of like learning like verses, because I don't say the verse number, I would just learn I would re remember chunks of scripture, uh, and because of my military training and, and you know being able to tie things together, and uh, I would I would pull things together, and I would start seeing trends, and I would start seeing you know this over this underlying theme across everything, and uh, and it was all about abiding, you know. And Jesus taught the lesson too, you know. It's like love God first, stay focused. Um, So working all this time and getting to that point where um, to, January 2016 was my was going to be my uh, ETS date, and they offered me all kinds of things. I mean, just an e, a, a spot where I had an uncontested promotion to E7. It was I would have had the only spot in the brigade. It would have been a full-time job. Um, I was going to have to go away for eight months to train, and then I was going to have to deploy again for a year. And it was everything that I ever wanted from you know the the military as far as like what I wanted to do, and it just felt wrong. For the first time in my life, it felt wrong. And uh, even after I got out, about three months later, they deployed to uh, Kosovo, and they called me up and asked if I wanted to join back up for a year and run a team. And I was like, this is a dream job for me. Hmm. Every selfish reason in the world for doing it, and I said no. Um, but when she told me that, uh, my first response was just, uh, 
just to be angry. Hmm. Uh, but then I think I said, well, I can understand how you'd feel that way. I don't know that I'd have very much to be proud of myself for. I said, you know, I said, but I think that this is what God is telling me I need to do. And uh, so I got out. And I told this story to my brother-in-law and Jason uh, Henley at uh, base camp. And they're just like, man, I'm like, yeah, I know. If she had said something like that to me a year before, I would have just flew off the handle. I, I don't think I would have, ever would have even forgiven her for saying something like that. And all I could think of to say was, uh, I can understand how you feel that way. <laughs> yeah. So Through the post-traumatic stress, trauma, and identity crisis, right? Which not only he was experiencing, you were experiencing. He talked a little bit about transformation and the way God worked in the midst of, he said it, he, he said it's, it's, it can't be this simple because it's not easy. Not easy. But it can't be this simple. Talk about your transformation because you guys were on very similar uh, journeys together with dealing with the same issues, but kind of on two different tracks, right? Kind of on two different rails. Uh, and when they came together, they were colliding. And so talk about your experience and your, your moment of transformation. Well, God has a sense of humor. Um, I was, you know, I, I've told my story before, but I, I was just laying on my bedroom floor, crying the ugly cries, not running down my nose and all this other good stuff and just crying out to God. And, and at the time I was very, very much in despair, you know, and I was like asking God, why, why my marriage, why my husband, why my kids, why? And I just heard, it's not your husband. It's not, those aren't your kids. That's not your marriage. And I'm like, and I just choke. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with that? Nothing, I heard nothing else, nothing else. I'm like, well, if it's not mine, what do I do? I mean, that, I, that, that is mine, right? Nah, not yours. Well, how would you treat your marriage if it belonged to God and not you? How would you treat your husband if he belonged to God and not you? And that moment helped me understand that Robert was not my enemy. Um, he was my husband. He was a human being. I was not in charge of him. I was not in charge of his happy. I really wasn't even charge of my happy. Hmm. And God comforted me by a lot, just removing that res the responsibility that I took, that burden that I took upon myself, and allowed me to, to help me with our relationship instead of our relationship. And as I just, all of a sudden, if he was a jerk, it was okay. I didn't accept it, but I'll, I didn't feel responsible for it anymore. I didn't re feel responsible for his trauma. I didn't re feel responsible for getting him better, for making his appointments. I had to take care of this. I was responsible for this and only this. And not only that, but I had to choose to not be wounded by all of the stuff that was going on with us. And it is a choice. It is a choice. I, I can say, yes, this happened, 
but I didn't have to camp out there. I didn't have to dwell on it. I didn't have to keep bringing it up and make, making him responsible for it and, and keep reminding him of that. So I, as long as I stayed focused with, with God and, and me, you know, myself, I, man, talk about crisis of faith. He was getting better, but he was not doing it the way I wanted him to do it. He was not going to see the therapist that I had picked out. He was not going to meetings that I really thought that he should be going to. And he would just gently say, you know, I don't think that is for me. And I'm like, well, that just proves you don't want to get better. And God was working with him in a way that I was not expecting. I didn't want him to do it that way, but he was doing it anyway. And that's something that I couldn't deny that he was, that it was, things were getting better. So that was funny. Well, and the whole identity thing was, uh, I think it had to be stripped away. You know, I don't think that God caused me to have a traumatic brain injury. I think he used it, absolutely used it, because it stripped away everything that was in the way of me realizing that uh, I placed my identity in the wrong things. I placed them in these worldly things that, uh, that can be taken away. That can go away in a second with a you know, couple of concussions. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where, for the first time in my life, I started asking who God says I am, and He sees me as something that I still don't. You know, I I still try to wrap my brain around how He sees me, and live in that reality, uh, because that's the reality that changes the way that I look at other people. Because I didn't have a very high opinion of people, including myself, in general. Um, coming home after spending a, you know, a year of, of just, I never once thought about myself when I was in Afghanistan. Not once. Or in Iraq or in any of these other places. I always, you know, I was trying to take care of my soldiers. I was trying to take care of the people that I was there, you know, the, the unit that I was there supporting. Um, I never once thought about myself. And then... I come home and that's all I'm told I'm supposed to think about is myself. And I, I couldn't, I didn't know how to wrap my brain around it. I didn't want to think about myself because then I'd have to face all this garbage that I was going through. Um, but for the first time I realized that uh, if I just, if I, you know, I'm not that person. I am that person that God says I am. It's like Paul, you know, Paul t says, you know, you're, paraphrase it, but, you know, your unleavened bread, now start getting the leaven out. Hmm. Um, the more that you can, you know, move into that reality, um, you, it just changes you. And, and knowing that it's not based on, on anything that I ever did hmm. takes the pressure off. Yeah. Uh, it makes me grateful and ashamed at the same time, which is kind of a crazy way to feel, but... Well, I know it's been hard. It's always hard. And I appreciate you guys being vulnerable. But I have two more quick questions for you guys. One, what advice and encouragement do you give to a congregation, to a body of believers who have people walking amongst them and into our Sunday morning services and into our lives that experience post-traumatic stress, trauma, all of these things? Is there any word of encouragement you can give to them? Don't leave them alone. Um, you don't have to have the right words. 
You don't have to have churchy words. You don't have to talk about PTSD. You don't have to talk about church. You don't have to talk about whatever. Don't leave them alone. Talk about whatever they want to talk about. Um, connect with them in a, in a totally different way and don't leave them alone. Um, one of Robert's, um, what brought him back, I'll say, um, what led him to going, oh, this is a safe place, the church is a safe place again. Um, it's not a place where I have to say I'm fine. It's not a place where I have to say I'm fine. Um, you, he had a running partner. The guy would not leave him alone. The guy would say, hey, he was our new go. pastor. Yeah. And I tried to kill him. Yeah. Just taking him running with me. I was he like, did. oh, you want to run with me, huh? Come on. Uh -huh. We'll run. So he didn't try to talk to him. He didn't try to make things better. He didn't try to say, well, do you have Jesus in your heart? He didn't try to any of those things. He just tried to connect with him any way he could, running, never said a word for several weeks. And then they just started talking about guy stuff or whatever. But I could tell a difference because all of a sudden Robert would mention, you know, hey, I'm going to go running with Chris again. And I'm like, what? People? You know, he, 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 you know, we called them care groups or small groups. He was like, I don't want to be in a care group because then, because I don't want to care. He told one of our ministers that, uh, no thanks. Um, and it's still a struggle for him, by the way. Hi, care group. Um, <laughs> um, you know, just to, just to walk inside of the door, that stuff doesn't go away. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't want to be part of the group app. That doesn't mean we don't want to part, be a part of you guys. And when we can come, we do, you know, but just to feel just as welcome, um, walking in every third week or fourth week instead of every week and not, you know, that pressure is gone. Um, just, just keep, stay connected. Yeah. Don't leave them out. So, because they want it, it's even if pursuit. they say they don't. Yeah, it's, it's that pursuit that uh, I started to admire. It's like, I really did. Like, I mean, I heard he couldn't even walk a couple of days for a couple of days afterward because he had bad knees, and I didn't know that, and I kind of felt bad. I was like, you asked for it, man. Hey, I, I just want to say I'm really glad you haven't tried to kill me. Yeah. Uh, let me, l last, last question. What, it, Rob, particularly you, what advice? There are people in here. Uh, that have experienced post-traumatic stress, trauma, identity crisis. What advice do you give to them? What do you want to say? Abide. You know, it's, it's not easy, but it's simple. Uh, when you start learning what it means, you'll just be amazed um, how it just infects every part of you, um, how you see the world around you, how you see other people. Uh, you know, it, it's allowed me to... to build relationships that I never would have dreamed I would have just with people that I never would have ever talked to before, hmm. would have never bothered talking to before. Um, God's not like a, he's, he's right there. He's just waiting for you. He's waiting. And if you will just abide, uh, he'll, he'll show you. I mean, he's ready to prove it. He's ready to show you. He sure was for me. And just don't give up. Tell somebody. Talk to somebody. My therapist didn't try to talk to me about my PTSD. He just tried to talk to me about my day. And all of a sudden, I could just talk about my day for the first time. And the really great thing about this story is, yes, there was so much, 
so much more than we will ever have time to talk about. But at the very end, um, all I have to say is that there are two people up here telling the story instead of one. Mm -hmm. And I am so, so, I will be eternally grateful to my father, my God, my creator, that, um, that I didn't have to fix it. Um, well, this story, this would be a completely different story without God. This is God's story, not ours. Yeah. Amen. I mean, it, it, this the only reason, and this, I say happy ending, but that's really the truth. It's like, this would look totally different. And I, I probably would, I certainly wouldn't be up here talking to anyone. <laughs> well, let's close. I want to pray over you guys. Thank you for sharing your story. Let's pray over them. And then as they, as they transition off the stage, I want to encourage you after the prayer, let's give them a big round of applause. One, for their vulnerability, for sharing their story, for teaching us that the word of God has spoken, the spirit has spoken through their lives. Let's pray. God, I give you thanks for Rob and Val, for their families, for the gift of faith that you've given them, for the way you've walked with them through the deepest, darkest valleys, for the way you've provided healing and continue to provide healing, for the way you sustain. I thank you for their vulnerability, for their story, and their willingness to share, not only here this morning, but with in other settings in this church and then in other settings in our community. May you continue to speak your healing, your transformative word about your presence through them. Father, we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you guys so much for sharing this morning. We really appreciate it. Let's just stay standing for a minute. John 15, 4, Rob alluded to this. Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. Christ abides with you. In the midst of crisis, Christ meets you there. He abides with you. He remains with you. We know this scripture very well, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil because you, God, you abide with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will abide in your house forever. Just before when Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you, he says in chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled, but believe in God, believe also in me. For Christ meets you in your crisis. And he goes on to say, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, 
you can do nothing. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear Jesus' words. Hear Rob and Val's testimony. Abide. It's not easy, but it's simple. And that God is the one that meets you there in your crisis. In order to sustain you and lift you up, to provide, to transform. Let's sing praises to Him and ask Him to meet us.